Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. We're in our summer hiatus right now. Uh, we'll be back with a whole load of new interviews and episodes and news bonuses and everything in just a few weeks. But while we're away, we want to bring you some of our best from the last year. And this one is episode 130. Uh, our guest was Professor Don Steeman of Loyola University in Chicago, and this episode was about whether eliminating cash bail harms public safety. Now, we've done some interviews and so forth about the elimination of cash bail, how cash bail is blatant discrimination against poor people, and a number of states and localities have actually gone ahead and eliminated cash bail. And then the backlash is almost immediate. Oh, criminals out on the street, crime is going up, and it's all because you eliminated cash bail. Well, Professor Steeman actually did the empirical work on this question in the state of Illinois, and his answers are pretty definitive. I think you'll enjoy hearing him. Great guy, good talker. So here he is, Professor Don Steeman from episode 130, Does Eliminating Cash Bail Harm Public Safety? Hope you enjoy it. More U.S. jurisdictions are questioning the use of money bail for pretrial release from jail. But many in law enforcement and the bail bond industry say that getting rid of cash bail will damage public safety. Is that true? What really happens when we trash cash bail? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system. And still, unaccountably, hanging on to that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. It's a discussion that was going on before the murder of George Floyd set off a wave of demands for police and criminal justice reform across the country. Isn't it time, at last to get rid of the use of money bail systems. How can a country that is supposed to be dedicated to the principle of equal justice under law allow a decision on who stays in jail before trial and who doesn't to turn on how much money that person has? Now, we've looked at this issue before on criminal injustice all the way back in our second season on episode 20, and then again in episode 77. That was with Roseanne Scotty, who told us about the preliminary findings in New Jersey, which had then just recently begun operating with a reformed bail system. It's time to return to that subject again with a major new empirical examination. Now, let's just refresh ourselves on this a little bit. Here's what money bail is, and here's how it works. When someone is arrested by the police, they're eventually taken to a local jail, usually well within 24 hours. The person arrested is entitled to appear in front of a judge for an arraignment. That's a set of preliminary legal procedures. Among those procedures, giving the person arrested notice of the charges 
an inquiry into whether the person has a lawyer, will retain one, or wants one and can't afford one, meaning that the person will then be screened for a public defender or a court-appointed lawyer, and a decision on whether the person can be released prior to trial, and if so, under what conditions. It's this last point that may involve the posting of bail, the deposit of money or other assets to guarantee that the defendant will return to court to face the charges. In the entire world, only the United States and the Philippines have money-based pretrial release systems. Remember that at this point, the person arrested hasn't been found guilty of anything. The purpose of bail is supposed to just be to guarantee that the person returns to court to face the charges. Pre-trial release is governed by statutes in all United States jurisdiction, by laws passed by the state legislature. In most states, judges can order the defendant to post a bond, a guarantee, in cash or, like I said, in an asset like a house, in the form of an insurance bond also purchased through a bail bondsman that they will appear in court. Now, in practice, bond amounts are set not only to ensure court appearance, but to keep people in custody who are thought to be dangerous. Judges do this by setting bonds so high that most defendants cannot make them. In the least serious cases, courts release defendants uh, based on recognizance or simple signed personal promises to return to court. But for any others, most judges set small or at least not very large bond amounts as a routine practice. The defendant has to post some money or asset. These amounts could be $1,000 or $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, even $500. These bond amounts can be met by a defendant posting that amount, depositing cash uh, with the court. Some courts allow a defendant to post a percentage of the bond in cash, say 10%, which on a $10,000 bond would obviously be $1,000. When a percentage bond is not allowed, defendants can go to a bail bondsman and for a cash fee paid to the bondsman, usually 10%, the bondsman posts a bond from an insurance company for the full amount. Now, the difference between a full cash or percentage bond paid by a defendant and a fee-based bondsman's bond is that in the former, the defendant can get the money back if they show up for court when the case is over. Fees paid to a bondsman are just what I said. They're fees and they are gone as soon as they are spent. But the net result is often the same. Most defendants simply cannot raise even small bond amounts of $1,000 or even several hundred dollars or even $100. Whether that money would go to a court or a bondsman, it's irrelevant. Neither they nor their families have these resources. So they end up sitting in jail until trial, not because they're guilty, because there hasn't been any determination of guilt, but because they are too poor to afford the ticket out. More well-off defendants, no matter how guilty they may or may not be, they get to go home and back to their lives, their jobs, their families 
to await trial. The effects of this, of sitting in jail pre-trial, are profound. Even a few days of incarceration before trial, let alone a wait of a few months, can devastate a person's life. Loss of housing, loss of employment, loss of a vehicle, even loss of child custody can follow. And for persons detained before trial, the legal consequences become much worse for them. Years of studies have documented that these people are more likely to lose at trial, if they go to trial, to get harsher sentences when sentenced, and they're more likely to plead guilty to something, anything, just in order to be released. So let's call cash bail what it is. It's a form of wealth-based discrimination with dire effects that are amplified with every step of the legal process. And because black and brown people in the United States are more likely to be poor than others are, cash bail will have a disproportionate impact on communities of color. That's why we see communities of color overrepresented in local jails awaiting trial. And that's a whole other problem by itself. All of this has led some states to consider eliminating cash bail and sometimes to enact laws to do this, as New Jersey has. Far more often, what we have seen is local actors taking the initiative. Judges of major county court systems, for instance, often with the support of progressive prosecutors, have modified local bail rules and practices in their own jurisdictions, which they can do without a change in state law in order to increase the percentage of pretrial releases without cash bail. These are real-time, real-world experiments, and tracking them to see if they succeed or fail is a really big deal. Now, as you can certainly guess, there are an array of opponents to changing or abandoning the cash bail system. Generally speaking, police, and I am generalizing here, but most police do not like these changes, and they want defendants locked up prior to trial. I mention that some progressive prosecutors have aligned themselves with bail reform efforts, but many more traditional, tough-on-crime prosecutors have opposed these efforts. And, of course, the bail bond industry itself opposes all of this, uh, and they are backed by the insurance companies, which write the bonds. The bail bond industry owes its very existence to the use of cash bail. For example, after New York State modified its cash bail system beginning on January 1st, 2020, opponents were out trashing the reform in days. In fact, they were trashing it even before the law went into effect. They made two arguments. Defendants not required to post bail would fail to show up for court. And, and this is the more important argument, allowing these criminals, remember they're not convicted of anything yet, but that nuance typically gets lost, these criminals running free, uh, that means that they would run wild to commit more crimes while released. Here's some audio from a report by NBC News featuring opponent of bail reform and Republican chair Nick Langworthy, followed by the voice of reporter Emily DeVito. Take a listen. If we started over and we just went back to square one, 
temporarily while they actually put, you know, put partisanship aside, put experts in the room, and let's have a bail reform that makes sense. Langworthy is blaming Democrats for the, quote, dangerous changes, and he says it never should have been passed in the late night hours with the budget. He wants to see judges get back the discretion to set bail. Amidst the scaremongering and yelling, the new bail reform laws in New York only lasted months in their original form. It took only that long for opponents and Governor Cuomo to sign a new law scaling those reforms back. So what's the real story? Are charges of criminals running loose on pretrial release true? Uh, Well, these are not questions we should answer with opinions or beliefs, no matter how strongly held. Maybe a quaint notion, I guess, but one that I prize. Let's make these kinds of decisions based on correct data, rigorously analyzed. These are empirical questions. Now, one of the jurisdictions that has been conducting one of these real-time experiments is Cook County, Illinois. That county contains Chicago and its large number of suburbs. Beginning of 2017, the chief judge of the Cook County Circuit Court changed the rules to favor more pretrial releases without cash bail. The opponents cried foul over failures to appear in court and the grave danger to public safety that would surely follow. After a year, dueling studies appeared. The court itself, in its own study, saw no danger in the data, but an opposing study said that the court study had been flawed, and in fact, a greater number of releases that followed the rule change increased crime. Who was right there? Well, we finally have the kind of rigorous study we've needed done using real data. And one of the authors is here to discuss it. Dr. Don Steeman is associate professor and chairperson in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Loyola University in Chicago. Before coming to Loyola, Dr. Steeman was the director of research on sentencing and corrections at the Vera Institute of Justice in New York. That was where he and I first met. He was part of the team working on the Prosecution and Racial Justice Project, and I was a member of the project's advisory board. We share that same relationship now on another project, Prosecutorial Attitudes, Perspectives, and Priorities, on which he is co-primary investigator. Dr. Steeman and his Loyola Chicago colleague, Dr. David Olson, have written a new research paper titled Dollars and Cents in Cook County, examining the effect of the changes in Cook County's bail system. The research was funded by the Safety and Justice Challenge of the MacArthur Foundation. We got a link to the full study up on our website. Dr. Don Steeman, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David, for having me. I'm really glad to be with you here. So let's start all the way at the beginning. Uh, The location for all of this is Cook County, Illinois. And as I said earlier, that's the county in which we find Chicago and the dozens of other smaller municipalities that make up the county. The circuit court of Cook County is where one finds criminal courts in the county. And in 2017, the chief judge of Cook County issued General Order 18.8A, how do you like that, uh, which changed the workings of the existing bail system for the county. 
Tell us what the system looked like before that general order and what the major changes were that the order brought into being. Yeah, before the general order, Cook County had a pretty traditional money bail system. Most defendants who came through Cook County on felony charges uh, received what we call a D-bond here, which is a monetary bond where defendants had to pay uh, a portion of the bond amount to be released from jail pretrial, or they received electronic monitoring where they also had to pay a fee to be released onto electronic monitoring before they could be released. Um, only about 27% of defendants received what we call an I-bond or were released on their own recognizance, meaning they didn't have to pay any monetary bail to be released. So if you think about it in Cook County before these reforms, um, somewhere around 70% of defendants had to pay something to be released pre-trial that was either on a, a D-bond or onto electronic monitoring. What the reforms did, they didn't really change the underlying system. We still have monetary bail in Cook County, but what the reforms did was create a process, a decision-making process that bond court judges were expected to follow. So the, essentially what the, the reforms did was ask judges first to determine whether a defendant should not be released pretrial. And if they shouldn't be released pretrial, then they should be held no bail. Um, if a defendant should be released pretrial, what the order did was create a presumption that those individuals should be released without the use of monetary bail, meaning they should be released onto an I-bond or on, released on their own recognizance. And if bail should be imposed, that uh, it should be set at an amount that uh, defendants could could likely afford. So it, the monetary bail still exists in Cook County. What changed was a presumption of, of the use of monetary bail. And what, what it did was created a, a presumption that the large majority of felony defendants in Cook County would be released without the use of monetary bail. Okay, so that's that's a really important point. The uh, the money bail system wasn't outright abolished. I mean, an individual criminal or, or county court couldn't do that. Instead, it created this presumption that more people would be released without having to put up bail, uh, and uh, people could still be held prior to trial anyway. So with that. Uh, uh, I'm just guessing, I don't know this for, for my, of my own knowledge, but based on what's happened in other places, I'm guessing there must have been opposition to this. Was that true in Cook County, too? Uh, yeah, there was a lot of opposition locally. So the, the media attacked the reforms, um, arguing that they would lead to more crime in, in Cook County or concerned that it would lead to more crime in Cook County. Um, that was also echoed by local law enforcement. The local Fraternal Order of Police has come out very strongly against these reforms, arguing that increasing the number of people released pre-trial um, would lead to more crime in the county and releasing them without have, requiring them to pay any kind of monetary bail would also increase uh, the number of people who fail to appear for their, for their trial. So there was a lot of strong opposition. There was a lot of support for it, though, among other criminal justice stakeholders. So the state's attorney's office has been in strong support of, of the reforms. Um, the sheriff has supported the reforms. Um, so you're seeing support for it among criminal justice agencies and then uh, some pretty strong opposition in the media and, through, and from law enforcement locally. 
That is so interesting because I, I would have anticipated the police opposition, but the media opposition, too. I mean, uh, I guess, you know, that's that's the way that these things fall in any individual place. So the chief judge puts out an evaluation of the program after what, about a year? And am I, am I right about the timing? Yeah, in 2019. So there was, these reforms took place in 2017 and they put out a report in uh, 2019. Okay. And what did the chief judge say about the program? So the, the chief judge's report, it, I, I would characterize it as an evaluation. Um, and that's not to discredit it or to, to make it less. It, it's, it wasn't, it was largely descriptive and just talking about what happened. So it describes the changes in the trends in the use of uh I bonds and D bonds in, in bond court. It talks about the percentage of people who were released. It, it talks about the percentage of people who failed to appear in court and, and or who were charged with new crimes while on pretrial release. But it's not a value, an evaluation in that it didn't control for differences in um, defendant. It, it didn't control for differences in the defendant population before the reforms or after. It didn't control for differences in case factors that might come up before and after. So in that sense, it wasn't an evaluation, but it was a, a an initial look at what was happening in bond court and what happened after bond court reforms went into effect. And what they found was that the number and percentage defendants who were released without the use of monetary bail went up, uh, which is what the uh, one of the expected impacts of the reforms would, were to be. It, it showed a slight increase in the percentage of people who were actually released pre-trial. And more importantly, it showed no change in failures to appear for court. It showed no change in new criminal activity by those individuals who were released pre-trial. Um, there were some uh, challenges. There's some critiques of, of the report, and rightfully so. It, it didn't follow individuals for the same amount of time before reforms and after reforms. So the defendants who went through bond court before reforms, the, the report followed them for if I do my math right, about three years to see whether they failed to appear for court or whether they had new criminal cases filed while released. And for the defendants released after the reforms or who went through bond court after the reforms, uh, they followed some of them for as short as three months. And it's just not long enough to see, to compare whether or not those individuals were failing to appear for court hearings or committing new criminal offenses while on pretrial release. It's, it's not enough time to compare them to those that were released before the before the reforms. Yeah, understood. You got to be comparing apples to apples in terms of everything that you do if you want to have a valid basis for comparison. And then uh, an, another study came out maybe making some of those same criticisms, as I recall, uh, and uh, talking about how the data was flawed and some other things. This was the study led by, among others, uh, Professor Paul Cassell of the University of Utah. Yeah, there was a follow-up, and, and this also uh, dovetailed, as I said before, with the, the critiques that were appearing in the media around bond court reform. So the Chicago Tribune picked up uh, some of the pieces written by these researchers from the University of Utah, and what and their their critiques of the chief judge's report were valid, right? They're, they were arguing that the chief judge's report didn't have the same follow-up period for those defendants released before and after the reforms. There was a problem with seasonality. So some of the defendants in the, the that were released after the reforms, they didn't track them through the summer when we know there's more criminal activity and those defendants would have more opportunities to, to be arrested during that time. It, it didn't 
it, the chief judge's report had a very conservative definition of violent crime. They only used part one uh, violent offenses to, to determine whether someone committed a new violent offense while released. And, and all of those critiques were valid and raised by these, the, the other, the, sorry, all of these critiques were valid and were raised by the researchers at the University of, of Utah. Their main argument was that because of these problems in the chief judge's uh, report, we, we didn't really know what new criminal activity was by defendants who were released. We didn't really know what the level of that was. So what they did was estimate that new criminal activity by defendants using some assumptions about um, recidivism rates of defendants released from prison, estimating based on the limited time period that, that there was to, to look at new criminal activity, estimating how many violent crimes those individuals might have committed while on pretrial release. The, the main problem with it was that they had to rely on the same data that the chief judge's report relied on. So they relied on the public data that the, that the chief judge had released with the report that they had done. And um, so it, it wasn't an independent evaluation using, uh, say, individual level data or using actual court data and actual jail release data to uh, to do an independent separate evaluation. Um, so it, and again, it, it ended up having some of the same methodological problems that the chief judge's report had. Interesting. So the critiques are valid, but they end up in the same kind of hole because they use the same data set. I don't know why people would go to all the trouble of of, of doing something new based on what's old. I mean, if, if you have a problem with the original data, uh, maybe keep to just critiquing it. But uh, that didn't seem to be what they wanted to do. And so uh, you guys, uh, you and Professor Olson, um, have some more time goes by. And are you able to solve, first off, the data problem? Do you have access to uh, a better independent set of data than either the chief judge or the chief judge's critics had? We did. So this project was funded under the Safety Justice Challenge, which is the MacArthur Foundation's national effort to reduce the use of jails. Um, and through that program, Cook County is part of the, the Safety Justice Challenge program. They provide data to the Institute for State and Local Government at uh, CUNY. And it, it's data on cases that are filed in the, in the criminal courts. It's it, data from the Sheriff's Office on who's admitted and released from jail. It's uh, data on uh, pretrial risk assessments that are done of defendants who come through bond court. And we were given that data by ISLG. And that's the data that we used to do our evaluation. And what it included was every individual who was who had a felony case filed against them between 2013 and the end of 2018. And it included every person who was admitted or released from the jail during that period of time as well. And it allowed us to do a, a proper evaluation where we could match defendants uh, before the reforms to defendants after the reforms. It allowed us to track those individuals for the same amount of time while they might be in the community after being released pre-trial. It allowed us to determine who was entering and exiting the jail during that time. And it allowed us, because we had access to the court data, to determine what types of new cases were being filed against defendants. So we didn't have to rely on kind of a narrow definition of 
for example, what a violent crime was, uh, we could create a broader definition of that and, and look specifically at who is coming back through for example, for those defendants who were released, who was coming back into the courts and for what specific types of offenses were they coming back through for? So you have access to data that will allow an apples-to-apples comparison uh, across a number of dimensions. And it's so interesting how all of this data from an Illinois court system was going to this organization, the Institute for State and Local Government, at uh, the City University of New York, CUNY. Uh, It was all collected there. So you're able to go to this third party and get all the data from a much richer set of sources. And that will allow you to make a different kind of study, which is a real evaluation based on actual correct sets of data. Exactly. And, you know, CUNY is collecting this for all of the jurisdictions who are involved in this and the safety and justice challenge. So this is a, a, the type of evaluation that could be done across jurisdictions. Right. And, and that safety and justice challenge takes in jurisdictions across the United States, not just in Cook County. Uh, but your focus on Cook County gave you an opportunity to use that data, that local data, for this very specific purpose of testing what is a kind of real-time, real-world experiment. Let's take a quick break here. You're with Criminal Injustice. My guest is Dr. Don Steeman from Loyola University in Chicago, uh, together with a co-author. He's the author of a brand-new research paper on the bail reform effort in Cook County, Illinois. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. David Harris here for Criminal Injustice. My guest on this episode is Dr. Don Steeman, Loyola University of Chicago. Uh, And along with his co-author, Dr. David Olson, uh, they've written a research paper on the results uh, that are reflected in real data. How about that? Real data about the bail experiment in Cook County Illinois. Uh, Don, before the break, we were talking about how you'd collected the real solid data needed for a an apples-to-apples real-life comparison. So using that data, talk about your approach. Let's talk about what you found. Uh, first of all, I guess, did the changes under the general order from the court uh, change the number or percentage of people who were actually released prior to trial? They increased the percent slightly. So what we found was before the reforms, about 77% of felony defendants were released pre-trial. After the reforms, about 81% of defendants were released pre-trial. So it's it's an increase of four percentage points. That equates to about 500 individuals during the first six months after after the reforms. So the the reforms themselves didn't 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 markedly increase the percentage of people released pretrial. What they did change was how people were released pretrial. We saw a significant increase in the percentage of defendants who were released without the need for monetary bail. So ah. the percentage of individuals who were released on what we call I-bonds, right? That's being released on your own recognizance. That increased from about 26% before the reforms to about 57% after the reforms. That's a very big increase in the percentage of people who are released without having to post any monetary bail. 
uh, right, a significant change in how people were released pretrial. Those individuals didn't have to post any form of monetary bond to secure their release. That is a very significant thing because not having the financial resources is what keeps people locked up prior to trial. Now, I recall from reading your report that there was a, a market and important uh, effect um, that showed up via race, that there was a race effect in this, uh, this aspect of the study. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So before the reforms, there, there was really no difference in the likelihood of being released based on defendant's race. So that white defendants and defendants of color were released at about the same rate. After the reforms, what we found was that race was a significant factor. So that black defendants were more likely to get I bonds uh, after the general order went into effect. Uh, that was something that we didn't see before the reforms went into effect. So the, the reforms themselves um, affected black defendants a lot more. It increased their likelihood of being released on an I bond uh, more than it did white defendants. Ah, okay. So uh, the the important uh, opposition charges, if you like, with all of these reforms across the country, but uh, no less in Cook County, has always been, number one, that you're going to have a big increase in FTAs, failure to appear for court. That's what bond is supposed to be for, making sure people show up for their court dates. What was the effect on people coming to court uh, from this uh, change in the use of I-bonds? There was a slight increase in failures to appear. Before the reforms, uh, about 17% of defendants failed to appear for at least one court hearing. After the reforms, about 20% of defendants failed to appear for at least one court hearing. It's a, about a three percentage point increase uh, after, after the reforms. And is, was that a statistically significant number, given the data that you had? It was statistically significant. And, uh, you know, part of the part of the part of what we're interested in looking at is exactly why the increase. So if court cases are taking longer to be disposed of, if defendants are spending more time in the community to have their case disposed of, that can lead to more failures to appear. So if these, if defendants after the reforms were released into the community and their cases then took longer to be disposed of, uh -huh. that may translate into more failures to appear. It's more possibilities to miss court hearings. I see. Okay. Uh, so the other main claim by opponents is, of course, the impact on crime. And what did you find there? I think you broke it down in your study. Uh, all crimes committed by people released uh, versus uh, uh, violent crimes. Uh, and we'll take each one before and after. Let's just start with uh, all crimes. Did this result in an increase across uh, all crime categories? No, it didn't. What we were looking at was whether defendants were charged with any new criminal offense while released pretrial. The media had been attacking this before the, the chief judge's report came out, arguing that changes in bond court reform would lead to increases in crime. The researchers from the University of Utah, their study estimated what that would be and argued that these bail reforms actually did lead to an increase in crime. What we found in our evaluation was that there was no difference in the likelihood of a defendant being charged with a new crime before or after the reforms. About 17% of defendants before the reforms and 17% of the defendants after the reforms were charged with a new criminal offense 
uh, while on pretrial release. That's either a misdemeanor or a felony offense. We also looked specifically at whether defendants were charged with new violent crimes um, and whether there was a change in the likelihood of being charged with a new violent crime before and after the reforms. And again, we found no statistically significant difference before the reforms and after. About 3% of defendants were charged with new criminal activity, violent new criminal activity before the reforms and about 3% after the reforms. So what we conclude from that is that the reforms themselves had no impact on the likelihood that defendants would be charged with new criminal activity while on pretrial release. Now, that is probably the most significant finding here because um, it's always the public safety argument, always, always, always. And uh, as I scan the press, uh, the media statements and so forth, uh, this is always what is argued about bail reform that, uh, you know, these, these folks will be released, they'll be out running wild and, you know, committing all kinds of horrible crimes um, and there is just no effect at all. As I recall, the Utah researchers even claimed that uh, this this change in the bail system was somehow responsible for a spike in uh, crimes across Chicago, and there really wasn't any increase in crimes across all of crime categories in Chicago. There was not. We uh, The last part of our analysis estimated crime rates uh, after the reforms, what, they, what we would expect them to be given historic crime patterns. And then we looked at actual crime rates after the reforms as well. And what we found was that uh, the actual crime rates were well within the estimated ranges of what crime rates should have been during that period based on historical patterns. That was true for uh, property crimes. It was true for violent crimes. And it was true for violent crimes committed with a gun. Uh, what we found was for all of those, the actual crime rates were well within the ranges that we would have expected during that time period. So interesting. So uh, here you are. Uh, you get a call from the chief judge of the court. Uh, he calls you and uh, Dave Olson down to have a little appointment with him. And he says, what should I do? I really thought your study was great. Uh, what, what should I do now? What, what, what kind of advice would you give the chief judge? Should they just maintain course and go ahead with what they're doing? Should they maybe increase the effect by, by coming up with ways to release even more people since it didn't impact public safety at all? What would be your advice? I think there are ways to increase the use of I-bonds in Cook County, meaning increase the percentage of people who released without the use of monetary bond. In addition to, to these reforms, right? as I said before, the reforms really set up a decision-making process for judges. But at the same time, the bond courts in Cook County started using a risk assessment tool. And what we found in our analysis was that risk assessment tool was being used and it, and it was predictive of whether or not someone got an I-bond or whether or not someone was released or whether or not someone committed new criminal activity, meaning that a, a defendant who had higher risk scores was less likely to get released on their own recognizance, was less likely to be released, and was more likely to commit uh, new criminal activity while released or to fail, fail to appear in, in court. So what it indicates is that the risk tools being used, uh, what could be done is expand the use of, of um, I-bonds in, in Cook County along with expanding the use of the risk assessment tool and ensuring that it's used in all cases. As, as you point out, we found no effect on failures to appear and we found no effect on new criminal activity. Uh, there are still, by the end of our study period, 
40% of defendants were getting D bonds, meaning that there were 40% of defendants who were required to pay some form of monetary bond. That was up from 20% at the beginning of our study period. So right, right after the reforms, only 20% of defendants in Cook County were having monetary bail imposed. By the end of our study period, just six months later, 40% were getting monetary bonds imposed. So there was oh. already a movement away from the reforms, uh, even in the six months that we were studying. And I, I think the, the chief judge could, could put in place um, mechanisms to ensure that bond court judges are only using monetary bail for those defendants who really require monetary bail. And that's largely to ensure that they show up in court, right? Other research has shown that the use of monetary bail doesn't have an impact on, on new criminal activity. We're not using monetary bail to ensure public safety. What we're using monetary bail for is to ensure people show up for trial. And if we can show that by releasing more people without the use of monetary bail doesn't really affect that too much. We could increase it uh, even more. So is this uh, generalizable to other jurisdictions or, you know, put it another way, if the chief judge of some other court in another state called you in, would you give similar advice? I mean, controlling for the types of bail statutes that they have and all that, would you give them more or less the same advice? Go ahead with something like this? I would, as I said at the beginning, Cook County's bail system before the reforms was a pretty traditional bail system, one that exists in most other places. What we've shown is that it's possible to reduce the use of monetary bail, uh, right? We've actually known that since the Manhattan Bail Project in the early 1960s, that it's possible to release people on their own recognizance and they'll show up for trial. Uh, doing that reduces the financial burden on defendants and their families. It reduces the burdens on local jails. And what we show in Cook County is you can do that and it won't adversely affect public safety, meaning we can increase the use of release on your own recognizance and re reduce the use of monetary bail um, and it won't have an impact on crime. So yeah. other jurisdictions can take this on. That's Dr. Don Steeman. He is the chairperson of the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Loyola University in Chicago. And along with his Loyola colleague, Dr. Dave Olson, he's the author of Dollars and Cents in Cook County, a new study of the effects of changes made to the bail system in one of the largest jurisdictions in the country. We have a link to it up on our website. Thanks a lot for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. Stick around. We'll be right back with Lawyers Behaving Badly. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this story of a lawyer behaving badly from an opinion of the Oklahoma Supreme Court and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Brad Pistotnik of Oklahoma and Kansas. Lawyer Pistotnik is what we would call in the legal profession, heck, in any profession. We would refer to him as a colorful character. He's a personal injury lawyer, has been disciplined for misconduct five times before what I'm about to tell you about here, and best of all, he has, of course, created his own advertising persona. Pistotnik is the bull, 
the toughest SOB out there, fighting for you against those dang insurance companies. There he is in his TV commercial, sitting astride a really large bull, full set of long-pointed horns, in lawyer regalia of suit and tie. Give a listen. Call in the bull. Call Brad. I'm attorney Brad Pistotnik. The bull. Don't get bucked by the insurance company. If you've been hurt in a car wreck, call me right now. Yep, don't get bucked by those insurance companies. Get it? Bucked? Well, this story shows that the bull knows how to buck people himself. It all starts with a messy law firm divorce of lawyer Pistotnik from his brother and former partner in practice. They split up, apparently leaving epically hard feelings in the wake. Nothing like a bitter family feud with a business dissolution to get the blood boiling. When negative things showed up online on the website's legal and rip-off report about lawyer Pistotnik and his new firm, Pistotnik got in touch with a web guy who launched a new website for him but also had a few other skills. In addition to launching his new firm's website, lawyer Pistotnik paid the web guy to get rid of very negative comments on legal and rip-off report. How did the web guy do this? Well, it's easy enough. He launched a full denial-of-service attack on those two websites and on the law firm representing one of the sites. Then he sent an extortion message. Take the stuff down and we'll stop. If you don't, we'll go after your advertisers next. You have four hours. No kidding. All of this, of course, is clearly criminal activity. And lawyer Postotnik, I mean the bull, was clearly part of this and paid for it all to benefit himself. According to the ABA Journal News, quote, After the negative review was removed from Ripoff Report, WebGuy sent Pistotnik an email describing his method and showing that the information on Ripoff Report had been removed, according to federal documents. Quoting again here, four days later, the WebGuy sent Pistotnik an invoice for his services, which Pistotnik paid the same day. In the end, federal charges for all involved. And lawyer Pistotnik ended up pleading guilty to three federal counts as an accessory after the fact to an extortionate threat. He'll have to pay fines and restitution totaling $430,500. As with any criminal conviction of a lawyer, referral to bar authorities is automatic. The bull practices in both Oklahoma and Kansas, and the Oklahoma Supreme Court has acted. Before the case got to them, it went to the state's Professional Responsibility Tribunal. Concerning the testimony of the bull at the tribunal, the tribunal concluded that he, quote, was not forthright in his testimony, and the tribunal recommended a one-year suspension. Well, the Oklahoma Supreme Court took that and the fact that the crime was, quote, predicated on deceit, close quote, and intended to serve only the bull himself. 
and they imposed a suspension of two years and a day. That's right, Lawyer Pistotnik, lying. Maybe instead of the bull, we'll just call you bull, the short family-friendly form of what we're all thinking right now. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice using our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal legal system? Well, why don't you just ask Dave? You can call 412-407-3389. That's 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that. You can also write out your question on our Ask Dave tab on that website. Remember, we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate that when you do it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. <laughs>